If there's ever more pressure on the tech platforms to solve certain problems, it puts more discretionary power into their hands, makes it harder to understand what cause and effect are of these privatized governance decisions, and further erodes democracy in the name of strengthening the democratic debate. And so we have to break that cycle by going back to what legitimacy to govern do we want leaders to have? I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 12th, 2020. It's another episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on disinformation. First, a programming note. We're aware there's been a big story on our beat. The U.S. 2020 election was billed as the disinformation Super Bowl for social media platforms, and many rolled out exceptional measures and policies in preparation for and during the election and its aftermath. In the coming weeks, we're going to talk to a number of people to dissect what happened and what went wrong or right. This week, though, we're bringing you an episode about the future of online speech that will be relevant whatever happens in the U.S. Evelyn Dweck and I spoke to Maricha Shaka about how Europe is not necessarily waiting for America to get its game together and is moving ahead with tech regulation. Maricha served as a member of European Parliament for 10 years for the Dutch Liberal Democratic Party and is now the International Policy Director at Stanford University Cyber Policy Center, an International Policy Fellow at Stanford's Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. We spoke about what's happening in Europe in the tech space, what distance there may be between European American ideas about regulation of tech platforms, and whether that distance is bridgeable, especially under a Biden administration. It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 12th. Maritza Shaka on reclaiming democratic control of the internet. Maricha, thank you so much for joining us. We wanted to start by just asking you to give our listeners an overview of your background and your work in tech policy. Great. Well, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be uh, on Lawfare. I follow your various publications and uh, I look forward to the conversation. So where to begin, right? Maybe I'll begin uh, in 2009 when I was elected to the European Parliament as an outsider in politics. Uh, I was 30 at the time and I had always had a huge interest in technology, more so out of curiosity in terms of, you know, what might come and where change comes from, which is also the reason why uh, I enjoyed being an elected politician for 10 years. And the whole set of developments that I saw unfolding from the moment that I was first elected into the European Parliament really, you know, put the tech policy questions into the heart of what I was doing. So uh, if you may recall the whole Arab uprisings, peaceful protests by uh, waves of young people from Tunisia to Egypt to Syria and the rest of the uh, North African and Middle Eastern countries, had a strong tech component, at least a narrative of a strong tech component, uh, Facebook, Twitter revolutions, but also uh, huge lessons learned in terms of state surveillance of peaceful activists and the sophisticated use by authoritarian regimes. And so the the double-edged aspect of what technology might bring, both as a promise of liberalization, uh, bringing democracy, empowering people, and also as tools that were clearly uh, helping dictators repress voices and human rights. And so the idea that the technology would automatically be a force for good was very clearly a dubious promise from the beginning for me, especially when I was elected. And the whole outlook on technology was very much informed by that understanding, so that if we wanted technology to help universal human rights or the empowering of individual voices, then there would have to be safeguards to make that happen. And then consequently, a whole bunch of other developments happened. The WikiLeaks publications, the Snowden revelations, the battle for net neutrality, a long process over copyright protection, questions about the export of surveillance systems that I worked on. And so in the various chapters, um, including press freedom, digital strategy for Europe as part of its foreign policy, I always try to ask myself, what do we need to do to make sure that the excitement around technology does not overshadow the risks? And how do we 
make sure that the public interest and universal principles like human rights and democracy are upheld. And actually, that's still the focus of my work today. After I moved to Stanford over a year ago, I still believe it's it's immensely important to, one, create better understanding between people in the worlds of technology and the worlds of politics and governance, but also to make sure that disruption through technology does not disrupt everything that we hold dearest, including democratic rights and, and human rights. And unfortunately, the pressing need to safeguard those has become, I would say, more clear over the past, well, what is it, uh, years and months and weeks and days. So I feel like we're in the middle of uh, highlights of this question unfolding every day, including in the United States. Yeah, it certainly feels like we are at a bit of an inflection point around tech policy debates right now and the difference, as you said, between the tone of debate around tech now to around the Arab Spring could not be more different. As a as a politician for 10 years, you experienced the opposite side of the content moderation debate that we spend a lot of our time here talking about. Namely, you were a public figure about whom there was a lot of online public debate and criticism. What was that like? Well, I did definitely witness myself a deterioration of the tone and an emboldening of, of very bullish voices on social media platforms. But I have to say that, you know, despite maybe some some very few exceptions, I've always still found it manageable and certainly not of the caliber directed at myself that I thought a, a legal intervention was necessary. But there was also the ongoing debate in Europe of how we should actually make sure that laws that we that we take for granted offline, which include not only enabling a free expression, but also some very specifically defined exceptions to the freedom of expression, would be upheld online. And in that sense, I think the European tradition and the American tradition, and therefore the public debate and questions about what is a harm and how might we look at those those harms have been so different between the US and, and Europe. And uh, it seems to me that, especially recently with disinformation and the infodemic around the, the COVID-19 pandemic, but also the questions of conspiracy theories and blatant lies in the political context have dramatically changed the way in which Americans are now thinking about the need to also intervene and, and not just believe that by giving advertising platforms like Facebook and Google the ultimate say that democracy and and public interests are served. So that's a great segue to our next question, which is about what the EU has been doing in terms of tech regulation. As we speak, the Biden transition team is sort of seems to be getting its game together. We don't yet know what the shape of a Biden administration's tech policy will be. I think there's a lot of uncertainty around that. But Europe obviously has has not been waiting for the US to get its regulatory game together and has really been, you know, had its pedal to the metal for a while. So what are the big things that you're watching in the EU in the next few years in terms of regulation of the major platforms? Yeah, so it's interesting that there's there's this idea that the EU is you know, much further ahead when it comes to tech regulation. Some refer to it as a regulatory superpower. And I think if you compare those big words to what has been done so far in terms of legislation, it's actually been quite modest. So I believe that indeed we need to look to the future to see much more of the real impact that the EU might have when it comes to tech uh, regulation, or as I think about it, regulating for principles like antitrust or uh, making sure that people can be uh, safe online or uh, questions around artificial intelligence, quantum computing. There's there's a wide variety of policy proposals that are conceptually on the table that have been announced, but that still need to be worked out in detail. And I think the most immediate one and also the proposal that will have uh, the most impact on the most visible tech services is the Digital Services Act, which promises to be an even bigger lobbying circus than the general data protection regulation, the GDPR was, and you know that says something, and probably also a bigger lobbying circus than the copyright directive update was, and that was also already quite a bonanza of, of lobbying and um, battles over the outcome. But the Digital Services Act, I think if, if Americans are not yet following it, would be 
worth looking into. It will try to uh, more clearly enshrine fundamental rights online, but also uh, look at liability questions for the tech companies and the way in which content is, is moderated and will differentiate different from the general data protection regulation in size of companies in terms of how much weight their responsibility is supposed to have. So I think it will be uh, an interesting package to follow aside from other regulation that's on the horizon, notably on artificial intelligence, which uh, I also look at with great interest. So let's pause then on the Digital Services Act and the reforms around content moderation. As you said, one of the sort of key fulcrums of the act, the idea is to enshrine fundamental rights online. But the question, I guess, is what is fundamental rights online and how do we define that? And one of the reasons why your perspective is so interesting is from is you're from Europe and you've spent a lot of your or most of your career engaging in tech policy from there, but you're now working at Stanford in the heart of Silicon Valley. So you've seen both sides. I think most of our listeners are based in the US and they're probably used to seeing and hearing about the US EU tech and free speech divide from the US perspective. And I think that that it's fair to say that that perspective generally doesn't look super favorably on other countries' free speech traditions. I mean, the most abuse I've ever received on Twitter personally was for agreeing with the premise of a New York Times article that suggested that maybe perhaps Americans could learn a few things from other countries' perspectives on free speech. It was quite the torrent. So I'm just curious what a European perspective is on that. What do you see as the biggest differences in the way that Europeans and Americans think about the regulation of online speech? Yeah, well, I recognize some of that uh, strong pushback and also stereotypical framing of how Europeans may look at free speech. I recall being called anything from a communist <laughs> to uh, being emotionally motivated about free speech issues as a European, uh, naturally. So uh, I think that the times have changed and there is now room for a slightly more mature debate, even though I do think there are constitutional differences between the US and and most traditions in the EU. At the same time, there's a lot of overlap, right? So I think the good news is that speech is free in democratic societies and that only in very, very rare exceptions, there might be limitations. And that's where I do believe that the role of regulation in protecting people in Europe has had traditionally a stronger role explained by very hard historic lessons. So the fact that in recent European history, both the Nazi regime and communist regimes have excessively surveyed people with uh, domestic intelligence services, gathering incredible amounts of data on people and actually, you know, using it to repress them uh, and to pit neighbors and family members against each other has left deep scars on Europeans. And so while in Silicon Valley, the notion that privacy laws and data protection laws might be you know, a weapon against big tech. That's not the perception in Europe. I would say that primarily people feel comfortable that the laws protect them also from overreach by governments, as well as overreach by private companies, whether they're digital or otherwise uh, collecting data. And so the, the historic anchoring of you know, why Europeans feel so strongly about preserving people's personal information uh, informs the intuition maybe or the culture and the uh, reasoning behind the laws in Europe. But that's mostly around privacy and data protection. But similarly, protection of minorities, you know, non-discrimination, whether it's in the economic sense around antitrust or in the sense of, you know, targeting minority populations or discriminating uh, because of people's uh, characteristics is, is not allowed. And I think in Europe, the promise that rights, including fundamental rights, should be protected online the same way that they are protected offline is the starting point. And I'm, I'm not sure, but maybe you have a better sense of this, whether for most Americans that's the starting point. I would say the belief that the market would resolve most challenges and that through competition or a choice for the consumer, the best path would be paved. Uh, was probably stronger in the U.S. for a long time. I think part of that American narrative is is a little bit inflated. You know, there have been big government interventions 
that have impacted tech, for example, in early investments in, in Silicon Valley, but also exemptions like Section 230, which five years ago, if you'd mentioned it, it would sound like abracadabra to most people. But I think thanks to the tweets of the president and many, many other discussions now, a lot of people will be familiar with Section 230 as the enabling limitation of liability for platform companies, which of course is a regulatory intervention that has actually enabled the internet economy the way we know it. So I would say it's good to look critically at, you know, what the actual role of regulation is, uh, where in Europe, I think there's a bigger appreciation for its role. But in the US, even though the narrative is its absence, it's definitely also there. Well, I feel as, as an American that I should apologize to both you and Evelyn for <laughs> all, all the abuse Americans have given to you for taking a, a different view on things. Um, but I, I do think that that's a an interesting setup to uh, one thing that Evelyn and I have talked a lot about on this show, which is there does seem to be a shift within the United States in terms of how people are thinking and talking about these problems. I think certainly from my perspective, there is a waning of the view that market power will solve everything, although I, I certainly think that there's you know more faith in that perhaps in the United States than there is in Europe. There's also a more of a willingness to say, you know, maybe there are certain kinds of speech that could be constrained in certain circumstances. I have thought a lot recently about a conversation I had with someone a long time ago who a constitutional law scholar who made the point that American free speech tradition is really a tradition that you would expect from a country that's never really had to grapple with the problems posed by speech in a profound way. And I do feel like over the past four years, we've sort of had a, a bit of a cultural reckoning with that. So with that in mind, I think one way of looking at these changes that platforms have made in the last few years is seeing them move from this sort of more American libertarian approach, more First Amendment focused to, you know, a, what we might call a more European approach, looking at proportionate restrictions on speech where there's risk of harm. You know, you see Twitter and Facebook have been very aggressive recently, for example, in limiting content that raises doubts about the integrity of the election or about you know, the efficacy of a coronavirus vaccine. Do you think that's a fair characterization of what's happening from your perspective? And in your view, have platforms gone far enough? Well, I think it's definitely fair in the sense that there's been a changing understanding of the depth of the harms that could also hit America. I think for a long time, Americans have perceived their technological advantage as a superiority over other countries, right? And economically, you could say that that, you know, is true even today. But it doesn't mean that there's not other vulnerabilities that are, you know, completely integrated with that economic success, also because the gathering of data uh, is such an integral part of the economic model. And it, it also allows for new ways to manipulate people or to uh, understand people's behavior in a way that they might not understand themselves. And you know, that that could be used for advertising, I guess, has not been seen as too problematic for a long time, but that it would be used for uh, foreign interference has raised alarm bells. So I think, especially after 2016 and the realization that, you know, Russia had tried to weaponize the big success story of social media platforms against Americans was kind of a wake-up call. And then many more wake-up calls have, have happened since then. And Perhaps it's not that surprising that the opening of this debate happened through the disinformation about the COVID virus, because I guess it was perceived to be less sensitive when public health was at stake, public safety was at stake, lives were at stake, to say, hmm, you know, if, if there's blatant lies, you know, demonstrably false claims, for example, that drinking some kind of tea would cure you from COVID or that vaccines would bring about certain illnesses of which, you know, the the, the causal uh, relation is, is not proven at all. If more people believe it, then all of society suffers because of uh, the breakout of measles, because of the lack of respect for uh, measures against COVID. And so I found it remarkable that through the public health debate, other issues suddenly were possible to discuss, such as democratic integrity and the manipulation of 
information online when it came to democracy, which you could argue that the health of democracy is also of critical importance, even if people may not immediately you know, have their lives at stake. And even that, uh, with, with disinformation and people willing to take up arms to you know, defend or attack or whatnot, uh, it, it's not a given anymore. So the idea that information online would lead to change behavior has been proven, I think, very clearly over the past years in a way that may, may have not been understood widely, uh, including in the United States until then. And so now the question is, what is the best solution? And in my opinion, there is still too much faith that those who are causing the problems, which I think are the platforms and their business models, even if it may not always be intentional, you can definitely see that there's enormous power and enormous responsibility with the ever-changing algorithms of ad companies. And still, uh, we look to them to solve the problems. And if you look at it from that perspective, I think the question is, does this serve democracy? And I would argue it does not. It only empowers these companies further and it makes decisions about free speech more arbitrary, more fragmented. And even if we look at the presidential election, before which we saw an avalanche of policy decisions by the tech platforms, it's hard to know whether they actually add up to having a positive effect. It's, it's just been so chaotic that transparency and accountability have not been served by leaving up to the platforms to sort of solve for the harms that they initially have facilitated. So just before we dig into what that model looks like of how to sort of rein the tech companies in, even as we demand more of them, one more question for you as our European correspondent. One of the very striking things about the American debate on free speech is how politically polarized it is. So one of the only things that both President Trump and President-elect Biden officially agreed upon was the idea that Section 230 should be repealed. But if you watch the tech hearings here, it's clear that that's where the bipartisan agreement ends. You know, conservatives want less moderation while liberals and progressives want more. And there doesn't really seem to be a lot. There's so much space between them. Is that divide also evident in Europe? Like other political dynamics of the debate the same over there or are they different? Well, it's a great question. And I almost feel like the kind of polarization we see, see now is, is the result of intervening too late. In Europe, clearly the whole political system is different and therefore the political debate is also different. We don't have a dual partisan system. Uh, well, you know, the UK had for, for uh, a while, roughly speaking, but most countries have coalition governments now. And uh, sometimes... And, excessive amount of choice, right? In in the Dutch parliament, there's, I forget how many now, but probably something like 15 political parties represented. And so you have a wider choice for voters and also a uh, incentive, if not a need to work together across political party lines to form majority governments, which sometimes takes a lot of time. That's frustrating, but it also leads to a deeper appreciation of uh, the common interest of cooperation. And so um, this kind of politically informed allegations of, you know, what preferences the platforms might have is, is not similar in Europe. I would say here there's variety in terms of, you know, whether, whether politicians think that the platforms are doing enough or that it's good for them to self-regulate or rather that the government should step in. Or, for example, there could be strong connections to incumbent industries like the publishers or the telecoms industry, and that may inform people's opinions. I think in both systems, the uh, challenge to actually understand the way the technologies work can be uh, observed in, in some of the debates that we see. So I wouldn't suggest that in Europe, these are not divisive and challenging debates. I just think that the divisions are very, very different from a bipartisan system that you have in the United States, where... Uh, the latest intervention by Twitter may inform an entire hearing on Capitol Hill, as we saw on, uh, I guess it was uh, October 28th, vis-a-vis -vis a more conceptual or broader or principled discussion about, you know, where do the laws cover some of the problems we see or where do we need to update them? So you said that part of this 
polarization that we're seeing in the U.S. might be uh, an effect of intervening too late. Can you expand on that? I think it's a really interesting point, and I'd love to hear more of your thoughts on it. Yeah, so because there has not been a set of principles agreed in terms of how, for example, speech should be uh, safeguarded online, but rather this has been left to the tech platforms, because there has not been a democratically informed, and I mean democracy as a system, not as the Democratic Party, democratically informed debate about how uh, the space for for debate could be safeguarded without incidents leading the political discussion on Capitol Hill. You know, since the online platforms have been, you know, in sync uh, with polarization, I mean, I wish I had more evidence to point to how they contributed to polarization because so much of what we would like to study, we can't access. But in general, the polarization and the way in which disinformation or at least um, the more extreme emotions that might be more popular online have played a role in this is probably now surfacing also in the political debates by elected representatives, right? Who are also informed by groups, whether it be people who adhere to conspiracies or groups that have organized online and that may be an interesting constituency for one politician or the other, or, you know, decisions that for example, uh, the Twitter leadership made about labeling false claims or lies by the president that uh, clearly led to furious responses by many Republicans because they felt like the Republican Party was attacked, which uh, I don't think is true, but that became the frame of the debate. So if there is not principle-based regulation, then we would probably keep running from incident to incident to incident, and it would even make it harder to ever come to bipartisan agreement or a coalition type agreement to actually go back to those principles first instead of incidents first. Perfect. So let's talk a little bit more about that then. One of the things that you've just been saying is that many regulatory proposals to do with platforms that are measures that ostensibly seek to rein them in can often give them more power. So, for example, laws that require social media companies to aggressively police hate speech or disinformation often outsource the task of defining what is hate speech and disinformation to those companies and thereby increase their power over shaping public debate without any kind of democratic input or democratic check. And you have called in your work and and today for democracies to claim back power in the digital world. So can you talk a little bit more about that and what that looks like? Yeah, you're absolutely right. So this idea that because the the question is hard, right, where does free expression end and a hate speech uh, definition begin? Uh, These are complicated questions. And so in the short term, it may have seemed easier, by the way, both in Europe and the United States, to push these questions back to the platforms to decide. They principally erode democratic agency and oversight over these decisions. And I'm surprised at how many, on the one hand, pronounced defenders of the freedom of expression have have simply accepted the fact that it is now advertising executives that are deciding about where freedom of expression is uh, limited or, or should be restricted and not democratically accountable lawmakers Um, who I think are in a better position to, based on a public debate and evidence, make such decisions. But that's where we also run into a problem because it is so difficult to know more about what definitions the platforms really use and how successful they are in enforcing their own stated policies because there's such a lack of transparency. And then because there's such a lack of transparency in terms of how these companies work and what different algorithmic settings mean at different moments in time for different rights questions, whether it's antitrust or freedom of expression or non-discrimination, it it makes it harder to have a well-informed public debate and evidence-based policymaking. And I think this puts us in a, in a downward spiral, you know, where if there's ever more pressure on the tech platforms to solve certain problems, it puts more discretionary power into their hands makes it harder to understand what cause and effect are of these privatized governance decisions and further erodes democracy in the name of strengthening the democratic debate. And so we have to break that cycle by going back to what legitimacy to govern do we want leaders to have? 
you know, do we think it's acceptable that essentially uh, the butcher is testing its own meat, that a platform says, this is our policy, here's our scorecard, we score excellent on our own criteria, let's move on. I mean, I know very few other sectors where this would be an acceptable approach at all. So I completely agree with that, although listeners will, of course, note that I am not uh, American either. And so I don't share sort of the deep-seated intrinsic distrust of government that seems to pervade so much US discourse about this, and especially when it comes to speech regulation. But on the other hand, for a lot of us that that do share this view, the, the Trump administration in the last four years has proven a fairly good counter-argument to the idea that, you know, governments sh- should get too involved with speech regulation in courting QAnon and, and Proud Boys while branding sort of Antifa and Black Lives Matter as, as dangerous and, and terrorists. So what do you make of that argument that you can't trust the government in speech regulation because creating a power is also creating the opportunity for its abuse and is is part of that that it, it, it doesn't involve substantive standards and more looks at like transparency and regulation of processes and the fact that they can't just be marking their own homework or how do you resolve that tension? Yeah, I agree it's a big tension when that trust is already eroded, but usually in democratic systems, there's not just the sitting government that decides. And there's also, for example, independent regulatory agencies or other laws that can be invoked. So, you know, clearly there's a lot of focus on the freedom of expression, especially in the American context, but there's also other rights that are protected in the United States, like uh, the protection from discrimination, where it's just not allowed to discriminate people. And that, that might be, you know, at friction with the freedom of expression. When somebody says something discriminatory, it doesn't mean that that goes legally because there's also uh, the protection from discriminatory expression or acts, right? And so I would start by looking at where online speech comes into friction with other rights and interests. For example, the public health that we have just seen play out so clearly when it comes to COVID-19, but you may also think about public safety, the uh, pluralist character of the debate, questions about access to information, when we see the opacity of the business models uh, of those who build the information architecture that we all depend on. So I think in the tension between rights, uh, a lot can can be discerned, but also Uh, rights normally also protect people from abuse of power by governments. And so it could also be an argument to say, uh, as long as the safeguards can be principle-based, they also protect people from their own governments. It's not like they can only be a tool in the hands of governments. But clearly, uh, to get to that point, you need some kind of trust. And uh, I don't think there's an abundance of that in the United States now, and, and neither is there in a number of other societies. But generally... I still don't think that if this is a fear, uh, the best alternative is to leave it to private companies. And we should be more specific about what kind of regulation we find acceptable. Too often, I think this debate is fairly shallow in the sense that there's talk of governments, for example, even though in every other context, a differentiation is made between, for example, democratically legitimate governments and authoritarian governments. Uh, And then, you know, I make the case for democratic governance of of technology for regulation, but it doesn't mean that I think every single piece of regulation is a piece of art. You know, I've also been very critical of of regulations that I've seen unfolding. I voted against a whole number of things. So I hope that we can get to a better place in terms of articulating what kind of regulation, by which institutions, through which uh, processes. And then I think there's a lot more nuance than just asking ourselves, do we want government to decide or uh, private companies to decide? So you made this argument for a a global democratic alliance on these issues in a a piece in the MIT Technology Review in September of this year, which is obviously before the American election. I think it's fair to say that the idea of a Trump administration signing on to any sort of alliance along those lines would be a bit of a pipe dream. On the other hand, you know, it's, it's easy to be sort of optimistic about a Biden administration right now. But as we've discussed, there's a a long history of tension and friction between the United States and and Europe on these issues for any number of reasons. So in your view, 
should we be more optimistic about the prospects for such an alliance under a Biden administration? And does it matter from Europe's perspective? You know, is would there be a sort of a waiting around for America or would Europe move ahead regardless? Well, I wish that Europe would move ahead regardless, but I can't say for sure because the the kind of uh, stagnation and fragmentation that we may see in America is also tangible in Europe, but in, you know, in slightly different ways. I mean, we also have illiberal voices, people who do not put democracy first, not in their own societies, think about Hungary, but also as a consequence, having a huge impact on Europe's credibility and ability to be a global player. So my my appeal to democratic leaders to work together better and to develop a democratic governance model for the digital world is is broad. It's it's not uh, aimed from Europe at Americans, for example. It's really a, a global appeal, where I do think there's a lot of traction. I hear similar ideas surfacing from from different angles, and Joe Biden himself. I actually worked with him in a in a group called the um, Transatlantic Commission on Election Integrity, and. Whether it was inspired by that group that clearly looked at democratic integrity in light of disinformation and, and foreign interference or otherwise, we've heard Joe Biden suggesting a democracy summit and having digital governance as one of the priorities. So that kind of plan gives me hope that there would be more of a collaborative spirit on the part of Americans. And Clearly, that's been absent for the past years under Trump. It's been no secret that he despises multilateral cooperation and has burned a lot of bridges between the US and Europe. So certainly, I know many Europeans are hopeful that America will play a more constructive role. Uh, I just think that those expectations should be realistic, that it will be difficult for President Biden and his administration to uh, do everything at the same time, right? There's huge demands domestically. There's huge wishes uh, internationally, and we're not even uh, January 20th when the inauguration happens. So I think it's important that each democratic leader that feels that this is an important call does their own work and doesn't wait for others. So I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit more about the role of AI here, which, as you mentioned, is another thing that you focus on in your work. So we spend so much time as a society and in general and in this podcast uh, talking about where to draw lines in terms of misinformation and hate speech and disinformation. But perhaps the most important or more important parts of how social media platforms work is the way that they distort debate in unseen ways. So amplifying certain types of content at the expense of attention to other kinds of content, you know, amplifying inflammatory or uh, engaging content over eat your vegetables kind of stuff. But a lot of that is a real black box. It's really hard to have any sort of visibility or transparency into how the algorithms work. How do we think about oversight of that kind of technology and regulation of that moving forward? Yeah, so I couldn't agree more that the whole question about transparency and accountability and an understanding in the public interest, not just in the corporate interest, becomes more important with every day that technology becomes more sophisticated. And especially with artificial intelligence, where uh, a lot of the excitement that the engineers uh, are are, uh, expressing is about the unintended consequences or the decisions that the uh, machine learning processes or, or other AI applications will come to themselves. And so I think that really puts at the heart of the the question for lawmakers, the the assessment of how much risk we're willing to leave to somewhat experimental processes by technologies and whether, whether we think that that kind of experimenting can just go on without oversight or without safeguards or without, for example, testing it first in a, in a certain environment without you know, unleashing the latest technologies on society right away and all the risks that comes along with it. So in Europe, we see a lot of discussion about how to strengthen public values and the public interest when it comes to everything that's digital and technological, which I think is is crucial. Uh, and then to to have a definition of higher risk and lower risk applications of AI is another way in which uh, there is an attempt to mitigate the sort of unforeseen consequences where the benefits of the AI successes are all for private companies, but the costs and the expenses of when things go wrong 
rests on the shoulders of, of the public and of society as a whole. So my sense is that with AI, as with the content platforms, the time of, of a lack of regulation and, and almost lawless uh, era is, is probably coming to an end very fast. So we've talked about collaboration between different regions and governments. I mean, there's also another trend has been what's sometimes called, you know, a balkanization of the internet or a, a splintering of the internet into different regions. Do you think it's inevitable that there will be more sort of splintering balkanization because of these many, many differences in terms of how different regions, cultures, governments view speech regulation? And I mean, is is that a bad thing? I'm obviously here thinking about, you know, there are authoritarian governments that take their own approach like Russia and China, but we could also look to divergences within democratic systems as well. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that the so-called splintering or balkanization of the internet was almost inevitable from the beginning because, you know, as long as there was not a convergence towards the highest human rights standards, as long as there was not an appreciation of the stakes of connectivity and the economic interests, the uh, geopolitical interests attached to it, you know, it, it was a great idea to to imagine a layer of you know, technology-enabled connectivity and information sharing that could be accessible for everyone. But, you know, I think very quickly, governments understood whether they were authoritarian or democratic, and I would argue authoritarian governments understood better, that their power and their ability to control information flows in their mirror image uh, was vital to their survival, Whereas democracies did not appreciate the stakes of having uh, democratically informed, rule of law informed rules of the road for the digital world and uh, did not actually uh, make sure that technology was governed in a way that would strengthen democracy. And so as a result, uh, I think we roughly see two systems, one where privatized governance that we talked about in the context of content moderation is very dominant. And then the other model where authoritarian governance is very strong as a model. And only now, I would say led by Europe, we see attempts to create a third way, which actually puts the rule of law and democracy first, but we're not there yet. In the absence of a strong democratic coalition, uh, I do imagine that not only between authoritarian and democratic nations, there will be fragmentation, but also between them, just because there has not been powerful cooperation between democracies to say, let's create a space, for example, where we have rules-based digital trade or where we define how universal human rights should apply in the digital context or where we ensure that there is accountability after criminal or geopolitical attacks through cyber means. So there is such a huge agenda that still needs to be shaped And I can only hope that the democracies of this world step up their ambition and cooperation soon enough uh, that they can still have a strong mark on how this process of setting standards and rules globally is is already unfolding. So you say that you you felt that authoritarian governments were sort of quicker to catch on to the importance of regulating speech and and conversations over the internet. Why why is it that you think that democracies took longer to catch on? Yeah, so I think actually the appreciation by authoritarian regimes extends far beyond just speech, but we can talk about that later. I think they've understood that the need to um, govern technology according to their values and principles better than democracies. And I think the reason is the democratic leaders probably believed more of what they heard of the tech leaders. You know, the, the promise of the technological revolution coming out of Silicon Valley was very much a liberalizing one, a um, bottom-up empowering one, a promise of breaking through monopolies of information and political power. And guess what? They've, they've mostly uh, facilitated new monopolies, new gatekeepers, and not so much uh, democratized the use of technology and of innovation in ways that perhaps the tech pioneers had hoped themselves. But I would also say that, you know, if you only look through a technological lens at the effects of the technology and you forget about the politics, the geopolitics, 
the high stakes, questions of how you're going to balance different interests, then you're basically sidelining democracy. And it has happened a lot that I heard you know, pushback against regulatory interventions that we would be discussing in, in Europe. And people would say, regulation stifles innovation. And that whole premise uh, holds that innovation is the most important thing to achieve. And I happen to think that it's, it's not. I mean, I think innovation is very important. I think we should look at how we can enable it, but not at, at all costs. And I think the net effect of believing too much that innovation would have a uh, liberalizing, democratizing effect is that democratic leaders basically trusted that process, trusted that market, and now have to play catch up at a moment where a lot of uh, advantage, both technologically and politically, for the combined democracies of this world has already been lost, right? It's no secret that democracy is under pressure, democracy online, freedom online is under huge pressure. And with every day that passes, essentially, it will be harder to catch up. So as we sit here, we are, you know, about a week out from the US presidential election. And I'm curious whether it's frustrating as a European to see the companies finally take all of the actions that they took uh, in preparation and response for that election, such as labels and a bunch of sort of unspecified break glass measures around reducing amplification and all sorts of things that perhaps were unimaginable a year ago, not because the problems weren't there, but that the companies just weren't willing. Do you have much hope for exporting those kinds of measures overseas? Uh, we, we've talked a lot about in this podcast in, in previous episodes about how platforms neglect users in developing markets and don't really pay attention to the very real problems there until it's too late. But I'm wondering what it's like in Europe. Europe, obviously not a developing market, a developed market, whether it's also difficult to get the attention of, of tech companies and get them to sort of take the same kinds of measures and how much hope you have that they will take similar kinds of precautionary measures and tamp down on the problems in, in other markets as well. Yeah, it's a great question. And it's, it's certainly been very, very revealing to see how much the platforms and all the managers were apparently able to do after all, even though uh, the argument was long that they couldn't and that the First Amendment didn't require it. In fact, it would hurt uh, the respect for the First Amendment. And so the set of steps taken by these platforms, I would say fully in, in their self-interest because their reputation came under so much pressure, but has really shown either the risk that they spotted from behavior on their platforms themselves or from the pressure uh, towards them to take more responsibility. And I think it's always good to take responsibility and corporations have responsibilities too. And, you know, they make value choices that we should hold them to account for. But principally, I would like these fundamental decisions about, you know, how to protect public safety and public health, how to and navigate freedom of expression against other rights, how to ensure that there's there's not discrimination online, um, that those decisions are made after democratic debate, a democratically legislated process with independent oversight and clearly also independent research. And what I worry about is that it will be extremely hard to know whether the sets of policy changes by the tech platforms have actually rendered better results. Some people are very quick to judge that what they've done has prevented uh, a lot of disinformation from spreading. On the other hand, we've still seen uh, a number of very worrying signs like the disinformation in Spanish-speaking communities, other ways in which disinformation is spreading. I think the biggest battle uh, is still ahead when it comes to disinformation about the vaccines that we hope will be available soon against COVID-19. So this problem is not behind us. And, and I would say that giving more power to the already excessively powerful private advertising platforms is, is the wrong way to go, even if some of the steps they have proven to be able to take may lead to small steps in a better direction. You know, this is, this is not the result of a democratic process, even though the impact on the democratic process is enormous. 
So as we've kind of touched on, there's a, a bit of optimism in the air around here at the moment. Um, and without asking you to, to burst the bubble, I, I do wonder if you feel the same. I think we've talked about a lot of ideas today. We started talking about how we're at a bit of an inflection point. But on the other hand, you know, none of these problems we've talked about are any closer to being fixed than they were two weeks ago. And uh, the tech giants obviously still have as, just as much power, even if they're enjoying a sort of moment of reprieve from uh, all the criticism they've received. Are you optimistic about finding solutions to these problems anytime soon? Well, let me start by saying I'm optimistic about the outcome of the U.S. elections. I think there is a big sigh of relief here, here in Europe, too, and a uh, hope that collaboration can be more constructive uh, and more responsible also towards the rest of the world. So I hope so uh, in that context, but I'm not necessarily more hopeful about what it will mean for tech governance. I think uh, it's been, you know, it's been interesting how many tech executives the Biden transition team and, and broader team have already hired, how close the ties are to some of the tech executives at the highest level, presumably also through fundraising. So um, I, I can only really hope that uh, Joe Biden and his entire team will commit to putting democracy first. I think, if anything, the United States has really suffered from a lack of principled democratic governance of technology. And I don't think the problem will go away magically, even if there's, there's perhaps a, a sigh of relief. And for what it's worth, I think a lot of the tech executives are not comfortable making these decisions either. So maybe they should just stop doing it. And instead of lobbying against regulatory proposals as uh, they're stepping up their efforts again in Europe, also in light of this Digital Services Act, perhaps come up with a more constructive approach instead of lobbying against uh, democratic lawmakers so forcefully. I think it's it's up to all of us to keep pointing to where our core principles are at stake and to pierce through the um, mythical promises of self-fulfilling prophecies of liberalization through technology. We've learned over the past decades that it's an illusion. Uh, we've seen how arbitrary some of the decisions by the tech platforms can be, certainly if you compare lack of action all over the world when democratic integrity and even safety of people in the context of elections was at stake and how much can be done now. So uh, there is a continuing need to hold tech platforms and their executives to account and to keep asking for more access to information for independent research, uh, for independent oversight, and to uh, work together towards better solutions than what we've seen. That's my hope. All right. Maricha, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back for another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Zachary Frank. And our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use. And thanks for listening.